You know, uh, this past week, I had an incredible conversation. Um, so North Tarrant Church, we are a partner church, a network church of North Point Community Church out of Alpharetta, uh, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And this past week, I got the opportunity to have a conversation with uh, one of the, the pastors, one of the leaders over the network churches. And, and one of the things that he shared with me was just this past week, he was in a conversation with, um, with Andy Stanley, which um, on some occasions we watch a message right here and we get to see flat Andy. Um, but he was actually in 3D in the meeting in which Rod was referencing. And one of the things Rod said was he is so excited about what is happening in the realm of network churches. There's over 80 churches across the United States and even globally. And we get the joy of being one of those 80 churches. And you know, it was fun to have the conversation. Rod actually was here back in November. And so he knows what we do. He knows the, the joys of set up and tear down. He knows the pains of trying to get everybody on the same team and the pains of getting everything squared away. And one of the things that Rod had the convert, he was asking me about is this, is tell me what's going on at North Tarrant. Tell me about what's happening. And I got the chance to talk about the fact that we're getting ready to move, which is kind of exciting. I got the chance to talk to him about our volunteers that Every Sunday morning, wake up and make this place <laughs> rather crazy. It's sometimes touch and go. There's been Sundays that we're like, I hope we have church today, right? Like, but at the end of the day, it always works out, right? But I got the chance to talk to him about you. Because at the core of who we are, at the core of what's going on, at the core of North Tarrant Church, it is a group of adults, a group of leaders, a group of, of individuals who have made it their goal, their, their desire to see something new, something incredible, something beyond them. To me, you guys are heroes. I got the chance to brag on you about the fact that um, I'm a little fearful that it's going to be rainy this Sunday. But you know what? I trust that we've got guest services people that will be ready just in case it rains. And good news, we didn't have to get anybody soaked today. That's a win. Now, who knows? We'll try to land the plane early so you don't get soaked getting out to your car. But I'm so grateful for each and every one of you and the service, the time that you've invested into the organization. But here's what I know is for me, there's, there's been many times that, that we will throw out this word hero, right? We'll throw out this word, hey, you are a hero. You are great. You are awesome. We're so proud of you. We're so excited about you. And many of us, we, we throw out these platitudes from time to time, don't we? And, and at times when we hear them, it can be difficult to receive. I mean, because when you think about a hero, you think about somebody that's like changing the world. <laughs> and... We woke up this morning. We looked at ourselves in the mirror and we said, oh man. We, we know the backstory, what's going on on the other side. We know the, the ways that we parent. We know the hurdles that we have. We know the struggles that we walk into. We've got a bird's eye view on what happens in our own world. And so when somebody says, you are incredible, you are a hero, you know what tends to happen? Is we tend to push back and get that false security, that false insecurity that <laughs> you don't know, you don't understand. 
And then you combine that with the fact that we live in a social media age. I'm going to trip over. We live in a social media age where this happens, where we look at Facebook, we look at Instagram, and we have this understanding of how great everybody else's highlight reel is. And then we look at our own lives and we try to compare the two. We see the beautiful family pictures that I hate to break it to you, probably were photoshopped and probably had like a dozen different takes. But we got the take that was so beautiful and then we go to take family photos and you, you're like, stop, just for a second, would you quit arguing, would you quit fighting, just for a second, would you look at the camera? What is wrong with you? You know, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. The two-year-old loves cheese, whether it's a camera or a stick. He is excited about cheese. And then the three-year-old's like, if you've ever, if you saw him this morning, I said, hi, Stephen. And he's like, I'm like, what's wrong with you, kid? Like, be outgoing or something. But you know, all of us, we have this, this fear inside of us. We have this desire, this struggle, right? Because we want to be something of value. We want to have significance. But at the end of the day, at the core, we see ourselves in the mirror and we understand the struggles and the pitfalls that we have. And we also compare it to the highlight reel of everybody else. But I've got good news. One of the things I found in heroes, in fact, in every hero I know, I will define a hero as this, is somebody who does the very thing that nobody else will do. A hero steps into the gap. A hero does the things that nobody else is willing to do. A hero goes in and sometimes just does the ordinary things that nobody else is wanting to do. But, you know, it's funny. In our herodom, if you will, ultimately, anyone who has ever done something extraordinary, we look at the extraordinary. We look at the extraordinary as if that is the definition of a hero. We look at the extraordinary as if I will never be able to live up to that. But at the core, anyone who's ever done anything extraordinary has also done the ordinary. I mean, you see these beautiful Facebook photos. You see this, this highlight reel and you think, wow, that is extraordinary. But the reality is you got one little snippet of a whole bunch of ordinary snippets. And isn't that true of all of us? And so we try to figure out how is it that what people say of us is true? How is it that what you say, how is it that I can really be a hero? And we begin to figure out, look in the mirror and say, there's no way I can. There's no way that I can ever live up to that level, that understanding. And, and oftentimes it's because when we look in the mirror, we see our weaknesses. Everybody else, we see their strengths. But when we look in the mirror, we see our own weaknesses, our inability. And one of those weaknesses, and what I want us to kind of dance in today and really talk about, it's this weakness. It's fear. We kind of began with this conversation. What are you afraid of? What is it when you just think about it? Whoa, your blood starts to boil. Ooh, like I'm just thinking about dinner today. Oh, I've got 38 people that are coming over. To my, I really don't. But I've got 38 people that are coming over to my house and I've got to clean the house and cook. And I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this guy talk to me when I could be doing so many other things. And the anxiety is just like... What is it that we're afraid of? What is it that when we look at our lives define the thing that makes our blood boil? Now, some of us in here, we've got this idea that there ain't nothing I'm afraid of, right? In fact, we put this bumper sticker on the back of our car. It says, ain't scared, right? Like many of you, you've got that bumper sticker on the back of your car because you're trying to prove to the world that, you know what? <laughs> I ain't afraid of nothing, I don't need no Ghostbusters. I ain't afraid of nothing. I 
ain't scared, right? Ultimately, y'all, yeah, we should put a y'all at the end. Like, ain't, tell you what, go grab some shoe polish, and anytime you see this bumper sticker just underneath it, wherever car, I'm not telling you to do this, you're not, just put y'all at the bottom, please do, no. But you know, anytime you see this bumper sticker, what they're trying to communicate is, I am not scared. They've just taken it and rolled it into about three syllables. They've taken four words and said, oh, let's, let's like southernize it, all right? I ain't scared, right? Like that's, we want that to be our reality, but the truth is that we know that that's not our reality. First time I ever went hunting actually might be considered my only time I ever go hunting. <laughs> but let's keep it as the first time I ever went hunting. Um, I, I was working for an individual. I was an intern, and, and he was my boss, obviously, and he loved to go hunting. He loved hunting. He loved hunting. He loved hunting. And so oftentimes we'd have creative road trips where we would go and put corn in the feeders. Um, and, uh, you know, being the intern, you just kind of have to say, okay, you know, and like we would dream about what's going to happen in the next year, but all the while he's dreaming and I'm carrying the corn. It, it was a great relationship. But I remember the first time he actually let me carry the gun to go to the feed. There were two blinds, there's two feeders. And, and, and so we got there late at night. We were hoping to get there in the middle of the day so we could have a little bit of daylight because, I mean, anytime the sun comes up or the sun goes down, you got to take advantage of it. That's one of the things I learned. And, and, and so the sun was already down. It was dark. And so Jeremy decided, I want to, I want to show you where your blind is in the morning. And then um, tomorrow morning, you just go. And I'm going to go to my blind and all will be well, right? So, so what do I do? I grab my rifle. Don't even know if it's armed. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it is. Like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really, no, I'm really not. I'll, I'll try to play a game. I, I, I was asked to go dove hunting once and they said I shot up the place. I was like, I saw a bird from a thing. Anyway, there goes my invitation, right? Like, but I had the rifle on my shoulder and I was walking because I knew that we needed, I needed to get to the feeder before the sun came up because when the sun came up, I needed to be ready because there's probably going to be a deer that's going to be sitting there eating the corn that I put out during our last creative meeting about a month and a half ago. And I'm not bitter, I promise. And so I'm walking and there was one path. I've got the gun on my shoulder and I'm walking and I grabbed my flashlight. I knew kind of what I was doing and I, I, I say that. Pull out the flashlight and what do I see? A skunk. I know one thing, that's my only way. And I've got a rifle, but I'm not thinking through that. Like who, who blows up a skunk? Like, so I run the opposite direction and I'm sitting here thinking, what in the world am I gonna do? What in the world am I gonna do? How am I gonna get to my, my feeder, my blind before daylight? Because if I don't make it there, Jeremy's gonna be mad at me because I might spook the deer. I mean, everything was going into my mind, but not only that, this was not my reality because I saw a little skunk who reminded me of all of the animals that live in the wilderness. I was scared. I ain't going to lie. Like, I think that I, was, I, I was scared, all right? Like, <laughs> let's just play that card for a second. Um, I think we won't go there. I ended up making it. I don't know how. But oftentimes, right, when we try to play out this idea that we're not scared, but, but once we're in it, we experience it. We can say we're not scared as long as it's on National Geographic, right? We can say we're not scared as long as it's from an arm length away. But the reality is, is that oftentimes we get fearful when we find ourselves in it. I mean, take Batman, for example, right? Everybody loves a good comic hero. Uh, Jim, one of our leaders a couple weeks ago, had a Batman shirt on at church, and I love that. 
But you take Batman, for example, every single episode, every single, whether it's um, like the, the Adam Wayne, the, the, the Adam West edition way back when, or whether it is like the current Batman, you basically have Gotham City where Batman comes in, saves the day, all right? He goes into the bank because there's obviously a bank robber there. He never has issues with the normal criminals. But when you start throwing in, I don't know, Penguin and his freeze ability, when you start throwing in the intellectual ability of the Joker, when you start throwing in Bane and his strength, what you come to find is that this superhero oftentimes gets a little tied up. He gets a little hurt. There's fear in the moment. That's what makes a good story is the fact that there is fear in the moment. There's fear in the story. And you begin to get on the edge of your chair, begin thinking, is Batman going to get free? Is he going to save the day? Now it's like, how is he going to save the day? Because obviously he's going to save the day. I mean, that's the course of the movie. That's the trajectory of our movies today. But, but there's a little bit of fear where we get on the, the edge of our seat. Because at the end, I know this of superheroes and myself, fear is a part of the story. But it's just not the end of the story. Fear will be a part of our story, whether it's a diagnosis, a relationship, a job, parenting. There are always going to be these experiences where we walk into fearful environments and fearful chapters of our life. But the beautiful thing and the thing I want us to talk about today, that even though fear can be a part of our story, it doesn't have to be the end of the story. So today, I want us to look at a hero from Scripture, an individual that doesn't get a whole lot of playtime. In fact, he is mentioned just a few times in the course of one of the, the documents that we're going to look at today. His name is Ananias. Ananias is, a, is an interesting individual that shows up in Acts. And let me just kind of give you a little heads up on what the book of Acts is. Acts is basically a travel document or a travel journal. There was this individual, Luke, who's an incredibly smart man who saw these, these, these individuals that, that experienced Jesus, that saw his resurrection, and as a result of that, their life was turned upside down. And he began to say, I want to get to the bottom of that. I want to figure out. So he thoroughly investigated the claims of Jesus to such a degree that he was able to write a document that's been preserved through time and what we believe is the document of Luke. Well, he was so floored by Luke's account of the story of Jesus, that he continued that forward into what we call Acts today. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 9. It, it's this, uh, this story, this, this account of an individual named Saul. Now, let me just tell you, if you're in here and this is your first time you've ever come to church, or maybe you um, have been away from church for a while and it's your first time back in, and there's probably something in the back of your mind that's saying, you know what? Christians be crazy. Um, you would get along well with the gentleman we're about to talk about. Because Saul saw that it was his mission to eliminate, to arrest, to torture, and even at times execute these individuals that were called Christians or followers of Jesus. So if you've ever met a crazy Christian, if you've ever thought, you know what, Christians are just a little bit too much, you and Saul probably would have an incredible conversation. But let's pick it up in Acts chapter 9, and just to kind of validate what I just said, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. See, this is, I'm telling you, like Luke goes in and says, this is the Saul that we're about to talk about. He was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Then he goes on and says, he went, because of that, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and 
the way was a way of describing who Jesus was. If they found a follower of the way, that was how Jesus' followers described themselves, as they assumed or they made the claim that Jesus was the way. And so if Paul or Saul at the time found anybody that was following in this, he wanted to have the ability to arrest and throw them in prison or take them back to whatever, take them back to Jerusalem. He wanted the ability to to basically eliminate this faction, this uprising of Christianity as we know it today. And he goes on, he says, whether men or women, he might take them. He wanted to take, didn't matter the gender, he was an equal opportunist. He wanted just to take everybody that was following the way and take them to be prisoners in Jerusalem. And it goes on and it says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It says as he saw this light, he fell. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which Saul's probably sitting there saying, <laughs> what? Uh, wait a second. What's happening? What's going on? And, 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 and in the midst of this, Saul, who's trying to figure out what is this light doing in my face and, and what's happening, Saul recognized the voice as if the voice of a master or one in authority. And he answers it and says, who are you, Lord? To which the Lord replies or the Lord responds, says, I am Jesus. Now think about if you're Saul. You're in the mission. You're, you're on the mission of trying to eliminate people that are following this guy named Jesus. And all of a sudden, you're blinded by a bright light. The voice that you hear is a voice that basically says, hey, um, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. And he goes on. He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. So I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand Jesus. I'm not persecuting you. Like, there's some crazy people out there that are claiming they saw you alive. Like, I remember, I saw you crucified. I saw you in the tomb. Um, like, we've got to eliminate this faction. We've got to clean up the church. We've got, to which Jesus responds, which Jesus would say, anytime you persecute, anytime you hurt, anytime you do anything to people that I love, you're persecuting me. What a profound reality. He, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus per se, but he was going after the people with which Jesus loved. And in the midst of that, Jesus would stop and say, stop, you are persecuting me. Such an incredible truth just to think about that when we, are getting, when we hurt others, when we hurt others that love Jesus, it is, it is akin to this frustration, this angst, this idea that Jesus is so in love with you that when you are hurt, he feels the pain, which is fascinating that somebody would love us that much. So he goes on and he says, now, Saul, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. All right, so Saul gets up and he's got a couple of comrades that, that get him up and take him into the city. They take him to the house that he, he dictates, the house that he wants to go to. And while he's there, he, he fasts. He decides he's not going to eat. He's, he's not going to do anything until he figures out the next step. He's stopping. He's figuring it out. What is next? Meanwhile, a little bit down the street, you got this guy named Ananias. It says in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And we believe Ananias was at one point a good Jewish individual who came in contact with the claims of Jesus and, and decided to become a follower of the way, a disciple, one who gave his life to study and figure out who Jesus is. And it says that there was a disciple named Ananias and the Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias, which 
He's like, yes, Lord. I mean, that would be so incredible to have this relationship where it's like, yes, like somebody's calling my name. Okay, what does this look like? And he says, yes, to which the Lord answers him and says this, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I love the, the specificness, right? Like, um, it's not just go find Saul. It's like, hey, go to the house of Judas, which is on Straight Street. So when you, you know, Google map this, you know, go Straight Street, there's Judah, the house of Judas. I mean, it's such detail. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Ananias had to know who Saul was. Ananias had to know that Saul was one of the chief individuals who was going out trying to eliminate the way. And yet he says, okay. To which he continues and says, name Saul, for he is praying. If not Ananias, I'm saying, yeah, I know what he's praying for. <laughs> he's praying for somebody like me to knock on his door. Like, what is wrong with you, God? Like, do you not know who, An who Saul is? And he goes on and Ananias answers him and says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Please. And he goes on and he says, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Don't you remember that? God, was this really what you wanted me to do? He goes on, the, the, the text goes on and says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. See, this is the moment where Ananias' story is intersected with incredible fear. What does he do? Does he let fear become the end of his story or does he let fear be a part of his story? Ananias went. He went. He opted to allow the fear not to be the end, but to be a part. I can't imagine what it was like. He probably got to Straight Street and is like, just, I mean, begging, God, please, like, send me a sign. Like, maybe hit me with a car if I'm not, like, just whatever. It, they didn't have cars, a buggy, right? Um, whatever it is, like, just please don't let me knock on the door. And I imagine he's probably getting up to the door and is like, you know, like, I, I, God, I tried to knock. and uh, No, knock. And and knocks, I can't imagine what was going through his mind, but it's in that moment that fear became a real part of his story. But it wasn't the end of his story. In fact, we know that, that Ananias went in and he prayed and, and all of a sudden Saul regained his sight. And, and next thing you know, Saul ate and he was baptized and, and he was nourished and decides, let's go. In fact, the text says this, that at once he began, this is Saul who was trying to kill Christians at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? And he goes on, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He went from preventing people to proving that he was. He went from preventing, from trying to keep people from jumping in, to proving that this is truth. That this, this, this individual, this guy that I was trying to prevent, I have encountered him and, and the resurrection has changed me as well. 
The stories of the individuals that were impacted by the resurrection, the stories of the individuals that saw a risen Savior, it's got to be true. And he ran off from there and began preaching to such a degree that people were like, whoa, wait a second. You see, what, would, what hung in the balance of Ananias saying no? Could we have maybe not had the entire half of the New Testament as we know it? Paul was one of the greatest. Saul, who became Paul, and secular theologians, secular scholars tend to believe that Paul was one of the, if not the most influential individuals when it comes to modern day Christianity. What hung in the balance of Ananias saying no? <laughs> you see, I firmly believe that the place you experience fear, for Ananias it was walking, right? The place you experience fear may be the very place that God wants to do something extraordinary through you. The place that you're experiencing the fear, the place that you're currently experiencing the fear, the, the questions, the what if, the oh my goodness, the what can I do now, the place that you're experiencing the fears, the current fears, could very well be the very place that God wants to do something extraordinary through you. But we have this fear in the back of our mind. We look and we know ourselves. We know what's going on. In fact, isn't this what Jesus says? Do not be afraid. And we read that and we begin to try to say, you know what, I just shouldn't be afraid. It'd be so much easier if I, I weren't fearful. Like, I know God, Jesus says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But Jesus doesn't understand my story. Jesus says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Was Jesus trying to tell me that I shouldn't be afraid? Was Jesus trying to tell me that if fear enters my story, then I'm doing something wrong? And I would tend to say no. And here's why. In one of those encounters where Jesus talks about this idea, this, this idea that, hey, um, guess what? Fear not. I want to give you the lead up to that because it's almost a pep rally of sorts. I love pep rallies. I'm a big Aggie football fan. Sorry, I'm shameless plug, right? And there's nothing more than, I mean, right now, I mean, we're like, I don't know. I'm not going to say the exact days, but we're, we're closing in on Aggie football season. And I love this idea because right now people like ninth graders who have a computer are taking sound bites and clips of Aggie football and putting it together to this epic music. It's da, 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 da. You know, and you, you watch it and you're getting fired up. You're like, oh man, I could run through there and get smothered by Alabama too. Like, you know, you get this excitement. I've been in pep rallies. I've been in these moments. And, and Jesus is sending his disciples off. And listen to how he sends them off. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, to which I would say that is the worst way to send me out. I know what happens to sheep. It doesn't end well. And he continues on. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And he goes on and he says, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Oh, this is great. And he goes on. He says, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And he goes on and says, but when? Wouldn't you have preferred to have an if? <laughs> but when they arrest you, do not worry about what you are to say or how you say it. <laughs> okay, why not? Why shouldn't I worry? I mean, this seems like the per perfect time for me to be worrying. Um, you didn't say, if I'm arrested, you said, when? What should I do? And he goes on and he says, at that time, you will be given what to say. For it will be not be given, 
For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. To which, if I'm in that moment, I'm I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so something inside of me is going to give me the words to say when I need it. Like, I think it would be better, like a better pregame speech would be, here's what you need to say. A better pregame speech is, this is what you're going to need to say if you get arrested. To which he's like, no, 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 no. Just go. When you need the words, I'll give them to you. No, you don't understand, Jesus. You just told me I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be hated. I'm going to be arrested. And now you're telling me, and I'm not going to have the words to defend myself? What is wrong with this picture? You're a horrible coach. (laughs) He goes on. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. (laughs) Great. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, let's just recap what Jesus just told these guys. He says, you'll be flogged. (laughs) You will be arrested. You will be hated. Beautiful thing he's telling us is this. There is plenty to be afraid of. He didn't tell them this pregame speech. Now go and fear not. He went and he said, you are going to be flogged, arrested, and hated. There is plenty in this world to be fearful of. It's not that we need to have the absence of fear. Fear will be a part of your story. So do not be afraid. So do not be afraid. (laughs) To which Jesus is sitting here telling us this idea. I don't know how that lands. (laughs) And in the midst of this whole account, Jesus tries to validate, to make a point. And he pulls out two birds, a couple birds, which if I'm in the audience at this point, when Jesus is telling us, you're going to go, you're going to be hated, you're going to be flogged. Hey, look, there's birds up there. Um, What is... (laughs) He says, are there not two sparrows sold for a penny? Okay, hold up a second. Where are you going with this? You just told me we're going to be hated, flogged, arrested. You told us don't be afraid. And now you're pointing out two sparrows that can be sold for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Jesus is leaning in and he's saying, guys, listen, bring it in. I want to give you a real life example of why you shouldn't be fearful, of what's going to happen when you go. Bad things are going to happen, yes. But don't be afraid. Because and even because you're the Father's care. And he goes on and says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. For some of us, this is an easy count. (laughs) But isn't that cool? That we serve a God, we, Jesus is pulling them in and saying, hey guys, guys, listen, listen, um, you're going out. You're, you're going to be flogged. You're going to be hated. This might not end well, but let me, let me remind you of something. I am with you. I am with you. As you go, I want you to know I'm with you. And how much am I with you? I'm with you because I want you to know that I care so much about you that I know the hairs on your head. And if I'm going to take care of the sparrows, (laughs) then certainly I'm going to take care of you because the sparrows' value is a couple pennies. Your value is infinite. To which he's telling you and he's telling us, God is with you. This was his message to the disciples before they went out. I want you to know God is with you. So fear not. Hey, as you go, I know what's going on. I know the hurdles at play. I know the relationship that's ended. I know the the struggle that's had. I know the change of job. I know that parenting is a bore. 
and I'm struggling to figure out how do we make ends meet. There's plenty to be afraid of, but know that God is with you. So fear not. Eugene Peterson, who took the Bible and basically wrote it into a a paraphrase, he took this exact setting, this story, and he rewrote it, and I thought it was so beautiful. He says this, Don't be bluffed into silence by the threat of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God, who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. What's the price of a pet canary? Loose, some loose change, right? And God cares what happens to it even more than you do. He pays even greater attention to you. Down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by any bully talk. You're worth more than a million canaries. Don't be bullied by the realities of life. Your value is immense. There is a God that is for you, who's on the other side of your, of your struggles, who's on the other side of your doubt and disbelief with his arms wide open saying, come. But the reality is, and here's what I know, is that God values us. The, fact, the reality that God values us doesn't always change the things we face. Wouldn't it be nice if this was the truth? Wouldn't it be nice if, the reality that we become a follower of Jesus, life becomes easy. It's not always that way. But here's what I do know, is it changes how we face them. It changes how we face these struggles. We say from time to time around here that following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. And one of the reasons I believe that to my core is because when struggles happen, we We have the ability to input comfort, joy, to choose peace, to choose self-control. We have the ability to choose not to get angry. And when struggles come our way, sometimes that can be some of the most difficult decisions. But one of the things I've learned and one of the things I've found over time and over talking with individuals is when struggles come, and they will, Jesus says they will. When struggles come, the joy of being able to say, God, I'm yours. I'm so grateful for the fact that you love me and are for me. But here's the greatest struggle, is we tend to forget. (laughs) We tend to forget from time to time. We tend to forget the beauty of who God is and what he is for you. So here's my challenge. (laughs) How How do we put this into play? How do we begin to live out this idea that God is with you, so fear not? We remember We remember what's happened in our life. We remember the victories we've had. We remember what God has done in the past. We remember the the jumps that we've had. We remember the things that God has used to get us through some of the past struggles. And for me personally, this is one of the reasons I am such, I'm so passionate about groups because circles are better than rows. Because when I find struggles, you know what I tend to do is I look at myself in the mirror and I forget what has happened because I, I make everything about the here and now. But how beautiful is it when we have a team of people around us that can say, yeah, but remember what God did. You remember 
five years ago when you were waiting for a job and it just so happened? You, you remember three years ago when we were struggling to find X, Y, and Z and, and, and in the midst of the pain, God came through and he didn't come through the way you wanted him to. But look at where we're at today and we're better off because of it. When we have a team of people that can rally around each other and remind us, hey, God is with you, so fear not. God is with you in the middle of this struggle. Fear not. Remember what he has done. It changes the perspective. I love, I love, I love the fact that I have a group of people around me that I can be gut level honest with. There are mornings, there are evenings, there's afternoons that I literally just don't want anything to do with Jesus because of what has happened, because of the trials I see in my life, because of the hurdles I see in other people's lives. And, and it just rages within me, but it's in those moments that I need friends to remind me and say, hey, yeah, but God is for you. Yeah, there's a big God who's going to work out the details. I don't know how and I don't know why, but our responsibility is to remember what he's done in the midst. To remember the simple truth that I no longer have to be a slave to fear because I, we are children of God.